coming up on Economics Explored. But I don't see the need to go from where we are today to a net zero outcome in one leap. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that also to me seems like a logical fallacy that comes back to the point that this is really, a lot of this is, uh, is uh, virtue signalling. You know, people are signalling their virtue, their banks or their or their oil and gas companies who have a bad reputation and they want to stick a net zero label or net zero wrapping paper over what otherwise has been a lot of unethical practices in the case of banks, for example. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 111, featuring Australian Senator Matt Canavan. It is part two of my two-part series, COP26 Dissenting Voices. Recall that COP26 is the global climate change conference being held in Glasgow in late October and early November 2021. I've previously discussed COP26 and climate change policy in episode 108, with Tony Wood of the Grattan Institute and with my first dissenting voice, Dr. Alan Moran, in episode 110. Senator Matt Canavan is a prominent, arguably the most prominent, Australian critic of the push for net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. In this episode, we explore Matt's reasoning and the evidence he sees as supportive of his view. Conversation was recorded over Zoom on Friday, the 22nd of October 2021, with Matt taking the call from his office in Parliament House, Canberra, the capital of Australia. Senator Canavan has been a Liberal National Party Senator for the Australian state of Queensland since 2014. From early 2016 to early 2020, with a brief break in 2017, Matt served as Australia's Minister for Resources and Northern Australia. US listeners should note that the Liberal National Party is a Conservative Party. Senator Canavan studied economics at the University of Queensland and he worked as an economist at Australia's Productivity Commission in Canberra in the 2000s. Matt was actually working at the Commission while I was in the Treasury and I've known Matt since about 2005. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions relating to this episode or to previous episodes, then please send them to contact at economicsexplored.com. I'd love to hear from you. Before we get to the conversation, I should note that both Senator Canavan and Dr. Alan Moran have given me a lot to think about and to research regarding climate change policy. I'll aim to summarise my current thinking on responding to climate change in a future episode after I've had more time to consider this challenging issue. Righto, now for my conversation with Senator Matt Canavan. Thanks to my audio engineer, Josh Crotz, for his assistance in producing this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Senator Matt Canavan, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Jane. Excellent, Matt. Uh, looking forward to our conversation on COP26 and climate change. So you're obviously involved in a, a big process at the moment. There's a big debate about uh, how Australia should respond. And I've got an international audience. I'm, I'm interested in Australia, but uh, I want to go broader. And uh, I know you're in the middle of negotiations and things in Canberra. Mm-hmm. So we'll, 
Mm. I, I want to make this. Can't talk about. Sorry, I can't talk. That's about okay. That. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not expecting a scoop. So, but what I'd like to ask is, uh, given you are Australia's most prominent critic of the net zero policy, so this is reducing our greenhouse gas emissions to net zero, or at least that's how you're portrayed in the media. Could you explain what's your rationale for opposing net zero, please, Matt? In some respects, you know, I actually agree here a lot with Greta Thunberg. Yeah, she she gave a speech a month or two ago accusing the uh, Western governments of blah, 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 you know, mouthing slogans. I'm not exactly sure if she called out net zero particularly, but, uh, yeah, net zero emissions is a slogan. It's uh, a buzzword, uh, as I've called it. And I really don't think it's a credible uh, solution. So we can go in if you'd like to my views on climate change science, but I do accept up front we should reduce emissions. There's some issue here. But even if you do accept the alarmist um, predictions, which I don't, I don't accept the most alarmist predictions of climate change science, but if you do accept those this particular policy is not going to be a solution to it. Number one, because there's not really been any country that's mapped out a credible plan to achieve net zero by 2050. And number two, because there is no chance that, uh, in my view, that China, uh, that India, that Russia, that many other developing countries are going to do this. So all this will do, if, if it is implemented, if people do actually strive to do it, is weaken uh, the countries that sign up, primarily Western developed nations so far, uh, and strengthen countries that, uh, that don't. And in particular, a case of the Chinese Communist Party, I'm worried about that. I think that's the biggest issue in our region right now. And I don't think it's the right time to be handicapping our own industry while China is threatening and bullying countries in, in the region. Okay. So how serious a, a threat do you think China is, Matt? I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I see what news corporation is reporting and I just don't know to what extent that's a beat up or to what extent it's a real threat. Do you have views on that? I don't know either, of course. I can only make judgments and and uh, my, my judgments are partly on the external and internal issues facing China. But I suppose the most important point to make here is that our own defence officials uh, are um, ringing the bell or alarm bell on this issue, that the reason we ripped up a $90 billion contract with the French government and uh, has have overturned three decades of policy on nuclear uh, energy uh, to adopt nuclear subs is explicitly because of the concerns that China is uh, fomenting conflict in our region. None of us want to see that happen, but the key uh, imminent risk here is if China makes a decision to try and take over Taiwan. This has been explicit from Xi Jinping in the last year in his 100 year of, years of the CCP speech, called for reunification. Uh, it's obviously a long-held goal of the Chinese government to do this. And uh, the internal pressures in China, I'm increasingly worried about, given the debt fueled growth they've had and the unwinding of what seems to be unwinding of that, which may hurt a lot of Chinese investors and savers. You know, often when governments, especially authoritarian governments, are placed into those circumstances, they'll look for a distraction. And then on top of that, you've got, you know, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the debacle that was, you know, we're, and we're not putting up a very big deterrent. I really worry that China has clearly breached rules in trade, uh, health, and and at least in terms of international law around um, the uh, the South China Sea. 
and they've paid very little consequence for, for these breaches. Uh, now, I'm not saying any of the consequences should be military, but why aren't we putting trade sanctions on China? Uh, why aren't we uh, putting sanctions on their officials' ability to travel and these sort of things? Because if we're not willing to penalise small breaches, or, re- or relatively not small to us, to some of our industries, but relatively uh, you know, non-aggressive breaches of international law, how can we credibly signal to China that we would we would respond more forcefully in the event of, of a real conflict? I I think we're we're falling into the trap of uh, sending China a message that they can get away with anything. Mm. Okay. The context of that, then, let's just play this out. If China did do that, if China did that and decided to invade Taiwan, I don't know what will happen next. And we don't really control exactly what will happen because obviously it will depend on what the US does, right? And then whether we get involved in that, we'll come down that relationship and well outside my pay grade, my my expertise. But I know what one thing that absolutely will happen is that uh, trade will be cut off. We probably will at least take the sanctions there. The trade will go. So iron ore goes. Uh, all of our agricultural exports go. It'll be a big, major hiccup and hurdle for the whole world economy. Uh, our, our access to manufactured goods, because it's not all one-sided. Very easy to sit back at the moment and say, oh, China doesn't, you know, hasn't got our coal and la ha ha ha. Well, we get lots of our stuff from China too. Mm. Uh, rare earths, uh, most manufactured goods, uh, pretty much everything in Bunnings. You know, so if, if that happens, how are we going to? Look at the supply chain crisis, crises we're seeing now. If that happens, are we in a good place to respond? And that's where, again, I'd come back to the priority should be rebuilding Australian industry and manufacturing right now to take out some insurance against that outcome, not taking pointless climate action, which won't change the temperature of the globe, but just make world leaders feel good. Okay, so I just want to go back to, I mean, Matt, you said so much I want to, I want to talk about. But We've only got half an hour, right? Uh, you sure you don't want to go to Joe Rogan? I want to go back to your opposition <laughs> to net zero. So you accept that there is some an issue with climate change and there would there be reason for the globe as a whole if we could somehow get that agreement and, and, and incredible commitments and follow through from the major economies, if we can get that, do you think that there could be justification for, say, a, a price on carbon or or, a, or huge investment to really improve the, uh, like, storage technology so we can have renewables or, or nuclear power? I mean, what do, you, what do you see as the way to resolve this? Well, I don't think carbon prices work. I'll come back to that. But I, I, I uh, but on the generic question, I mean, the short answer is yes, uh, but I don't see the need to go from where we are today to a net zero outcome in one leap. Uh, mm. I mean, that that also to me seems like a logical fallacy. That comes back to the point that this is really a lot of this is uh, is uh, virtue signalling. You know, people are signalling their virtue, their banks or their or their oil and gas companies who have a bad reputation, and they want to stick a net zero label or net zero wrapping paper over what otherwise has been a lot of unethical practices in the case of banks, for example. Yeah, you know, to me, if we want to take action, reduce emissions, I mean, everything, everything in life, you're best to do it incrementally. You're best to look, okay, let's reduce emissions by this much and see how we go and whether that can be done. And, you know, we're, we've committed to do that and on track to do that in Australia to cut our emissions by 26% by 2030. That's not an, an easy thing to do. And, and I would argue already it's having some, causing some difficulties in our energy markets in particular. Uh, you know, to me, you didn't take that step. And then, so what do we need in 2021 to start thinking about what we're going to do in 2050 before we've even reached what we're going to do in 2030? We've got plenty of time then to think about, well, okay, the next few, let's see how this goes. 
and what we should do post that, assess it, reassess it, look at whether it works or not. Um, because I think going for these unrealistic goals will cause more damage than the effort. I understand the need to set targets and goals, but you know, you've got to set realistic ones to be successful. I mean, I could set the goal to run a marathon. I probably could do that. I just went for a run the Savo. It was a, you know, seven or eight K. Probably if I put my mind to it, I could run a marathon. But I, if I set a goal to run a marathon under two hours, well, that's just stupid. Mm. Right? Not going to happen. And I'll probably do more damage to my body or my lifestyle if I'm trying. And that's where net zero, I think, comes into. It's just so fantastical. It's a distraction technique around the real issues of doing something today. Now, in terms of carbon pricing, you asked about, look, I just don't think these schemes have worked elsewhere. And we live in democracies. You've got to adopt policies that are going to going to bring get people's support over time. And you know, if there's one way you want to lose, if you want to lose popular support, uh, put up people's living costs. That's a good, you know, it's a good if you want to if you if you if you're getting sick of politics and you want to get out of it as a member of parliament, yeah, adopt a policy to to put up someone's living costs. That that will usually do the trick. And and so it's all well and good for economists. And, you know, I know you well, Jay, and I'm an economist, sit back and that's the ideal optimal scenario. It all works in our, when we put, you know, we put this uh, into our marginal rate of substitution curves. This is the best way to get people substituted carbon free or carbon, uh, lower carbon goods. You've got to work in the real world. And in the real world, uh, what will happen is if you put up, push, push up people's prices, and yeah, you what the with the idea that oh you'll get all these innovations and they'll eventually come down. You're not going to get that far because in between those periods, you'll have elections, these things called elections, and some political party will pop up, hey, I'll remove that tax and get that, you know, and and uh, give you a give you a give you more money. And people will vote for that. So it doesn't work. And you can see that everywhere it's tried, the yellow vests in France. Uh, uh, obviously the debates we've had the past 10 years in this country, mm. in the US, they don't even get to the starting line. I mean, they're still with a Democrat-controlled Congress, they can't get through, and it doesn't include carbon pricing, but they still can't get through uh, their, their their climate commitments. So I don't think the, the, the purest pursuit of carbon pricing policies is a particularly smart tactic, at least if we want to keep democracy, uh, from those who want to see greater climate change action. Okay. So on other countries around the world, so we really, if, if anything's going to happen, it needs to be the major economies of the US, China, Japan, EU, and then, I mean, India is increasingly important because of the the populations getting richer. Yep. You know, second largest yep. country in the world, going to be the largest. Yep. Well, what's your, in your assessment, how are these countries performing or are they likely to even meet net zero? I mean, China claims it's got a net zero by 2060. I mean, how credible do you think that is? Well, I don't believe them. Uh, I mean, if we can't trust China to allow people to in- inspect the origins of the coronavirus, I'm not sure how we are going to be able to in- uh, trust them to have climate cops going in and checking things. So, you know, it's hard to judge anyway because their commitments don't start till after 2030. You know, they don't have any binding commitments until then. So you can't judge my performance. I mean, but just put a China aside and have a look at more benign countries like Canada. Canada didn't meet didn't meet its Kyoto commitments. Canada's emissions are up this century, uh, uh, but for COVID last year, they had a reduction thanks to COVID. But from 2000 to 2019, Canada's emissions grew and New Zealand's only dropped by a smidgen over that period of time as well. Uh, now, we've had large cuts. I admit we could talk 
we would have to go for hours to talk about the fact that we got pretty generous counting treatment under Kyoto for our land use changes. Mm. Uh, that's allowed us to have significant cuts in emissions, but most other countries haven't done this. And then the other, the countries that have, countries that have, give Europe its due, it has met, most countries in Europe and Europe as a whole have met its their climate commitments. The UK has reduced its emissions more than any other developed country in the world. Uh, but things aren't working out all that well. I mean, I, I yeah, because it, what, what's happened there, I would argue, is yeah, the accounting treatment of carbon emissions means the UK has sent a lot of its manufacturing to other countries, particularly Asia or Eastern Europe, and it's still consuming the cars and industrial goods, but it just doesn't account for the carbon emissions embodied in those. And then on top of that, it has made radical choices to shut down coal-fired power stations, not expand the North Sea oil fields, and 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 ban fracking. And now they're relying on gas from Putin, who's playing hardball over Nord Stream Two. And I just, why would you put yourself? Why would you put yourself as a country in that position where you're reliant? on a dictatorial authoritarian regime. And then you, you got the situation where you've got lines at petrol stations, mm. factories are closing in the UK. These things are happening. And then people try and say, oh, it's not net zero, it's other things. So it's truck drivers. I mean, give me a break. If 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 the UK had allowed fracking, I mean, at least mate, we don't know. You, you never know before you drill in the mining game. Um, so maybe they would have come up nothing, but people reckon they do. They probably do have gas resources because the large coal seams that has they have gas at the very least. Uh, but they just haven't allowed it to occur. And so if you make those decisions, you become reliant on other countries, and the world's not necessarily a peaceful place. And I, I don't think you'd want to put yourself in that position. Right. Okay. Now, can I ask about the attitude of business in Australia and? So you're talking about the cost of net zero and, I mean, tr- look, based on the analysis I've seen and based on you know, modelling that was done in the Treasury back when I was there by colleagues of mine, there clearly is a cost to these these policies. I mean, one thing that surprised me is we haven't, I, I mean, I, I, we haven't, we're not doing the detailed CGE or computable general equilibrium modeling. Seemingly not. No. Yeah. Doesn't don't we don't appear to be. And I think this is a point you've made in some of your interviews. Uh, um, have you seen you've seen that Deloitte analysis that was commissioned by the BCA, haven't you? And that's been reported as Australia Net Zero Business Council tells Scott Morrison how to hit the 2050 target. And more than 130 of Australia's biggest companies have told the federal government a strategy to reach net zero by 2050 not only makes environmental sense, but could grow jobs in the economy in the process. And they've got some really big numbers there. What are your thoughts on that analysis, Matt? Look, I I must must say I haven't looked at their modelling in detail. When they released that a week ago, or their net zero strategy week ago, the actual report only had... I did read that report. It only had half a box on half a page devoted to, uh, sorry, box on half a page devoted to the Deloitte modelling. Apparently, there is a report someone told me this week from earlier in the year that Deloitte released, but I couldn't find it, and I just haven't had the time. Okay, I'll <laughs> to look sit for through it. and go through it all. But yeah, look, the, the, you know, you and I have both done this stuff. You can get whatever answer you want uh, from a model, depending on the assumptions it would appear. I think Judith Slane had a good column on the Deloitte modelling the other day. She went through it and seemed to indicate that what they've done is look at um, look at uh, the cost of of not acting, if you like, and presumably high capital costs in this country, 
associated with apparently banks not lending to us, possibly some stuff around natural disasters and stuff. And then said, well, if we do act, things will be down and that. But I haven't had a chance to go through all the details. I mean, you know, the, the, I think you don't need a computable general equilibrium, equilibrium model to say getting rid of all fossil fuels, of all energy types, is going to come at a, at a significant cost. Now, that cost might be in the resources applied to develop the technologies, you know, not necessarily carbon price or things like that. But you and I know that's still a resource cost because those resources could be applied elsewhere. They'll still spit out a shadow price in the model if you do that. Whereas it seems to me that a lot of the, the modelling we've commissioned, at least the questions I've asked of Angus Taylor, who's a very good economist, knows this stuff. Seems to be what we've done is the old economist trick of a Schumer can opener and, and um, hydrogen in particular comes down like manna from heaven. Right. Where we sort of don't need to invest resources to invent this thing. It just sort of pops up. And 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 you know we're we're happy days. Now, in some respects, as you know, you know, like in growth accounting models and that, that's often what they do. They just they can't explain how growth can occur, so they just chuck in a. I can't remember the Greek letter that's used in the solo model, but you know that that's that's what uh, uh, just to mad just just takes all the growth effect. Yeah. Can't really explain. It's exogenous, but in the real world, you, you're not going to get hydrogen and these things developed without significant resources being applied. That comes at a resource count. It costs if they're public funds, they're public resources applied. That obviously comes with a dead weight loss associated with taxation. And I give the UK Treasury credit; they made that point in their in their report, which I did look at a little bit this week. Uh, they made the point that the resources needed to uh, to invent technologies to offset uh, the tax revenue need to offset lower income off fossil fuel generating activities will come at a cost of extra taxation and cost the economy. Although they did not, still did not publish an overall cost to the UK economy. They had a shadow carbon price of 295 Australian dollars a tonne, which is very consistent with other modelling. CSIRO had it, I think, at 230 Australian dollars to get to net zero. That was a couple of years ago. But um, that, that is a significant cost, obviously, through through our economy. And I and look, I wouldn't. I mean, I don't put too much weight on these things, mate. I mean, mm. you know, <laughs> trying to predict something in thirty years yeah. with technologies we don't even know about—is it two thirty? Is it two ninety-five, mate? We really don't know. Yeah. All I'd say is it, this is a significant cost, and the issue for me is: is it going to deliver a significant benefit to Australia? And then you come back to well, are, there, are other countries acting? Are they going to take advantage of us acting and them not acting? That is a much more political, strategic discussion than one that can be answered by a CGE model. Okay. Now, this point about, would you call it a capital strike? Or there's this view that mm-hmm. if we don't act on climate change, if, we, if Australia doesn't go to Glasgow with a net zero commitment, a credible commitment, then international investors won't invest in Australia. Now, this strikes me as somewhat implausible, given that I think ultimately investors are going to be motiv- motivated by a uh, uh, returns where they can earn returns, uh, uh, risk adjusted. So I, I just wonder about this story. But this is a story that's being told by the Australian Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, and also I think by the Reserve Bank, if I, one of the, one of their go- assistant governors. How credible do you think this story is, uh, Matt? Well, look, uh, I, I haven't. It's hard to find any evidence evidence of it right now. I mean, we we are often lambasted as being the worst in the world and bottom of the list in terms of climate action. 
So you'd think if there was a capital strike occurring, we would be somewhat feeling the effects of it today. Uh, but interest rates are at record lows. Um, there's been no 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 identifiable change in our interest rates relative to those in the rest of the world in the last few years or so when this issue has become more apparent. So yeah, that's that's really hard. I, I don't see it. Uh, could it happen in the future? Well, again, yeah, you would come back to a normal asset pricing model, which would say if there's alphas around, uh, someone's going to want to pick that up, right? Um, yes, companies want to be ESG and woke and all these things today, but there are a lot of people around the world who still just want to make money and there's not a particular shortage of capital, at least not today. So, yeah, I, I find it a bit hard to believe. There's no doubt that uh, finance and insurance is drawing up for coal and, and to a lesser degree gas mm. in Australia. That's happening. That's happening. But I would argue there you've got a situation where for some financial products, you've got quite a quite oligopolistic market, say, for insurance. There's not that many insurance companies around the world that insure big, large, big you know, resource projects. And with the activist shareholder pressure, most of them have have succumbed and therefore you've got a gap in the market. Now, will that gap be filled over time by someone else coming in? Maybe, maybe. But then you've got issues of scale and, and efficiency and can those new entrants provide as low cost insurance as, as, as ones before? Look, I think it's a bit too early to say. There's, there's a lot of people down here talking about providing uh, the resources sector, a degree of of uh, government backed uh, support. I think it's something we've got to think about if if these corporations are making these decisions for non commercial reasons. And uh, I mean, the 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 real issue here, um, though, what we're talking about is net zero. And so while while I would say the only capital strike that you see occurring right now is that coal, gas, and those things. Signing up to net zero is not going to change that. Those companies are doing that not because we not, are not mm. have not yet formally signed up to net zero. They're doing it because they don't, you know, their active shareholders don't want them to invest in coal or gas. That's still going to be there whether we sign up to net zero or otherwise. So that doesn't deal with that problem. And look, finally, I have made the point which I've been strongly criticised for, but I've finally I've made the point that look, even if this were true, I don't accept it. But even if it were true. I don't, I will at least want us to reflect and think, should we really decide that laws and policies of this country based on the financial, based on the um, interests of financial, uh, large financial institutions overseas? I, I, I'm uncomfortable with that idea. I mean, I've, I've used the example that if, if we want low interest rates and we want low cost of capital, if that's the goal, well, we could sign up to the Belt and Road Initiative. That would help deliver that. We'd get all this capital from China to build ports and roads and rail lines all around the country, and that would lower the cost of capital in Australia. But rightly, we've said, no, we're not doing that. Uh, we're not going to be beholden to the strategic interests of another country. And likewise, I, I don't really want to be beholden to the uh, strategic interests of overseas-based banks. Mm. I was just going to say that we did have a state premier here who signed up or had a memorandum of understanding with China on the Belt and Road Initiative, didn't we, uh, Dan Andrews? But I think yeah. And look, I'm not. I've never been that critical of him because I think this has evolved over time. I mean, when I was first became the Resources Minister and Northern Australian Minister, I held a trade investment conference in Cairns, and the head of the National Reform Development Commission, which is the major government financing body in, in, in China coordinates lots of different people. I met with him and at this stage, well, we had declined to formally establish the Belt and Road or, or agree to a Belt and Road type package. We were 
you know, happy to discuss with China uh, investments they would make. And uh, and so, look, you know, got to remember, I think, I'm not sure when Dan Andrews signed it, but it probably wasn't that long after the trade agreement we signed as well. This is when my discussions with um, this gentleman were just after that. So we were, you know, the relationship has deteriorated very quickly uh, when you think that trade agreement, I think, was signed about five, six years ago now. Right. When I, you know, our government's position, I think, was the right one, was that, look, we're happy for to consider investments from China into Australia. We've got a proud history of, of, of largely agreeing or supporting overseas investment. But we also, our system is to always do it on a case-by-case basis. And we always reserve the right to say, look, no, that particular investment is not in our national interest, sorry. Um, or yes, but here are the conditions that you've got to adhere to to do this. And uh, they weren't that keen on that. They wanted to, us to effectively sign a, an agreement which would say, look, we're going to support all of this stuff and we're pre-approved, basically. So we didn't do that. And... I mean, there was lots of other things, obviously, that caused the rift in the relationship. But um, I still think we've made the right call. It has come at a cost to the country, but not not the Armageddon-type cost that some were predicting. Mm, because we've been able to sell into other markets. Is this what you're saying? With our coal, we've been yeah, able look, to sell Yeah, look, obviously, it. there's a whole lot of things that have happened. Yeah. And there's been a shortage now of uh, fossil fuels that has you know, meant that prices are through the roof everywhere, regardless of where we're selling. But but it was always the case, and this was discussed within government when we were considering these issues, that yeah, that, that we that that the denial of one market will lead to second round effects that will will somewhat ameliorate the loss of that market because in the coal market, for example, uh, China still needs coal. They mm. will buy more from Indonesia, from South Africa, and will that will free up the customers that South Africa and Indonesia used to sell to for us. Now, presumably, you know, Ceteris uh, Paribus, all other things equal, you would expect that our price for our coal will fall a little bit because we were probably selling to the best market we could uh, and we've lost that. We've lost the Chinese market. So at the margin, we'd probably get a lower price think, because of our, our, our um, stance to protect our independence. But you don't lose the value of the whole coal, right? You don't, you yeah. know, you know. We've got we've got very efficient, very high quality coal mines. So we're always probably going to find a buyer. We're always going to find a buyer above the marginal cost of production for most of those mines. But obviously, we'd love to have more of a margin than otherwise. But you know, uh, we 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 I think are right to make decisions in our own sovereign interest. The same the same effects in markets like barley and grains uh, generally. Um, you know, we we have been able to find other markets. The ones that are different are things like wine and and um, coral trout. You know, high valued mm. goods where there's not really a deep liquid commodity market, and a lot of the sale of those goods are based on on relationships. You know, people you need to build a relationship with supermarkets with people, particularly in a country. You can't just switch that overnight. So they have been hurt. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But again, I think we've got to prove we can't, we don't want to sell out to another country. Okay. Okay. I'll ask one more question, Matt. You're a senator for Queensland and you're based in, well, you're in Canberra at the moment. You're in, uh, you're stuck in Canberra. Stuck, uh, stuck here. Yep. Thanks. Thanks to Anastasia. <laughs> thanks to the border. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll have to another day on that one. If you like. Oh, I can chat about that. You have done very good work on that. I'll thank, give you that. The, the, thanks, Matt. Common um, sense is starting to, starting to uh, re-emerge. Uh, yes, yes, that's correct. Uh, now, uh, yes, you're in Rockhampton, and uh, it, which is a uh, you know major centre in in regional Queensland, and beef, and and also coal and other mineral resources in in the uh, the region there. Now. 
What do you see as the future for coal? Because coal has been such an important part of many of our regional economies and it's it's been a, a very strong contributor to the Treasury here in Queensland. Mm, mm, mm. But we've got these forecasts, some forecasts, and Tony Wood from Grattan, when I spoke with him the other week, he was talking about how the demand for coal, some people are forecasting that it will fall off a cliff. Do you have any views on what's going to happen with coal? So it's really it's really important with these types of exercises to define the markets, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of people who talk about coal don't understand that uh, in the in the words of John Laws, uh, coal ain't coals. Uh, there's not one type of coal. Uh, there's lots of different types of coal. And so I'll just, for the purposes of summarising this, it's important at least to distinguish between uh, the global market for coal and the market for Australian coal. So, uh, yes, many people think that the global market for coal will face a precipitous decline. I think most of those forecasts are a little over-aggressive. Um, if you, the International Energy Agency publishes different scenarios and if they're on their current policy scenario, which means people keep doing what they're already doing um, in terms of climate, demand or use of coal in the Asia-Pacific region actually grows over the next 20 or 30 years out of that scenario. If countries obviously adopt, well, not just adopt, but do net zero, then it starts to fall considerably. I'm given our previous discussion. I'm more in the former camp. I don't think countries are going to do what they say. So haven't done before. Haven't done so far. So I, I think the demand will remain robust across the world, and that will be good for our coal. However, even if let's say let's assume uh, Tony Wood's right, and there's a precipitous demand, uh, drop in demand for uh, coal across the world, this is where I think the critics really miss the boat. And to give you a bit of a scoop, our modelling, the modelling on the net zero, I asked Angus Taylor this. It hasn't been released yet, despite my best efforts in the Senate this week to support motions from the Labor and other sides. But our modelling does not have different demand curves for different types of coal, which means any projection that comes out of it, I think, is pretty rubbish because we. And this is something a lot of people don't understand. Our coal, Australia's coal, is only about 5% of world demand, right? Um, we, we are not the major producer of coal in the world. We're, I think, fifth China. Um, India, US, Russia are all above us. We're fifth uh, in terms of size. And Indonesia is about the same as us. Uh, so even if even if coal demand was to drop by 50%, I, I don't think that's going to happen over two or three decades. But even if it was to halve, we, all we have to do is increase our market share from 5% to 10%. We won't, we'll still sell exactly the same amount of coal. That's perfectly achievable given the high-quality coal I mentioned before that we've got. Um, it's going to be the last coal mined in the, world, in the world if there is going to be a move away from coal. People will continue to start used to use Newcastle coal given its high quality. Now, I haven't even gone in, we haven't got time to go into you know, the steel making coal, thermal coal, et cetera, um, and obviously the steel market, which is, no, you know, most of the coal that comes out of Queensland goes to making steel. Again, I, I, yeah, there's, no, there's no alternative right now. And and maybe hydrogen will come along, but that's a big, big question mark. I, I, I still think there's going to be significant demand for coking coal for, for generations to come. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I'd make one more point too. The other point you make about energy markets, it's, you know, there's people who pursue 100% renewable energy and all this stuff. There's it, been no time in history where the world has used one type of energy. You know, so yes, there was a coal era and a gas era and a, well, briefly a nuclear era. Era didn't really kick on. Uh, an oil era, but 
each of, in each of those areas, the, the percentage of coal or oil or gas didn't get above 50%, you know, in terms of energy. You know, it was always below that. Uh, there's always a plurality of different sources. Yeah. And I don't see that changing. I, I just do not see that changing. It will continue to be a multitude of uses for different things. People also underestimate how much coal is used for. It's not just electricity. It's not just steel. You know, the gloves, the rubber gloves uh, people use, that comes from coal. Uh, a lot of the, the a lot of the medical equipment you see, or or um, uh, pharmaceutical equipment, uh, um, toiletry products, a lot of coal goes into those things. Yeah, because uh, the gases and other things that come off tars and what have you that are byproducts of coal. We say hydrogen. If we invent hydrogen, it may replace the use of some things. I just it's a bit hard to see it replacing the use of petrochemicals, coal. Uh, in everything, that's that is a massive, massive leap. Yeah, and I mean, at this stage, China and India are still building coal-fired power stations. Is that right? So, China, according to I think this is the best estimates come from a website called Coal Plant Tracker. You can Google that. Okay, they are a bunch of grannies, but they they actually get through the good, good, good on them. They go through the media reports and find out what actually is the best, as you could tell what's happening in China. The official estimates can't be trusted. Of course, uh, China is building, according to them, 95 coal-fired power stations at the moment. They have about uh, 1,100 coal-fired power stations, and uh, India, India is building 20 something. Sorry, yeah. I just thought I had it on something. That's head, okay. I can look it up. Check out. You can look at my Facebook feed, Twitter. I've got that on there. I've got those figures. Make sure you subscribe. Yeah. Yes, uh, I've got lots of friends on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I was just thinking now, as you were talking about. Like what what you think could happen with coal, and I, I think that's very plausible. It could be that, I mean, we just yeah we don't see that big drop in demand. That's very plausible, particularly if we go through another decade. And I mean, I, I'm skeptical about what's going to come out of COP26 because I mean, even if Joe Biden goes and makes a big commitment, and other countries make big commitments. Do they actually have the mechanisms internally to follow through and deliver those? Well, America, America doesn't today. I mean, yeah. it's pretty hard to see how Joe Manchin, sorry, a bit technical, some of your listeners wouldn't know. Joe Manchin is a Democrat senator from West Virginia. He said this week the coal mines will not close. Yeah, uh, He's the Joel Fitzgibbon, if you're an Australian listener here, of the US. Comes from a left-leaning party but represents coal mining districts. Um, you know, it's... Hard to see how that will happen. And another thing that really surprises me here is that there's been this there's been this argument that well we need to sign up to net zero because Joe Biden was elected last year, but this is a commitment to do something until 2050. Mm. Now, I'm not commenting about the president's health, but I don't think he'll still be the president in 2050. There are seven U.S. presidential elections between now and 2050. And the big problem the advocates of net zero have is. Whatever the political debate here is and wherever that gets resolved, I don't think there's any chance in hell that the Republican Party is going to adopt net zero anytime soon. It is almost absolutely certain, put aside Trump, DeSantis, whoever, whoever is the Republican nominee, whoever's the next Republican president, um, is is not going to deliver on a net zero commitment. That is not the where their party is at or their people or supporters are at. So how do you you know, get to this target over over a political cycle for such a long period. It, 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 to me, again, comes back to this point that carbon prices, all these signals, they don't provide the certainty that the economists think they do because you live in a dynamic democratic world. What we do need to do is invest in technologies, and I'm all for that, but also do so in a way that's realistic, understanding that 
technology may not work. It may not. It's risk. It's a risky uh, venture. Okay. So, I mean, what do you think, if you've got time, what do you think of the major, prom- the most promising areas of technology? So you were you a bit dismissive of hydrogen before? No, I mean, I've well, uh, I, just, I might not have said this. Uh, I've done a lot of media this week, so maybe I said it somewhere else. When I was resources minister, I developed the first national hydrogen strategy. Okay. I uh, got Alan Finkel to, to do that. He was the chief scientist at the time. And Alan and I don't agree on all of these things, but he's a very, very uh, uh, intelligent, um, uh, forward-thinking Australian. He did a great piece of work, uh, been to multiple hydrogen conferences around the world. Uh, and, yeah, I think we should uh, invest in this and see what happens. But do so in a way it's realistic. Uh, you can Google and find a clip of Joe Bjorki-Peterson launching the first hydrogen car, uh, which was an old um, old modified uh, Ford XD Fairlane, I think. Right. Um, with a, the, the media, the news report at the time said that there was a nuclear fusion reactor in the engine uh, that, that uh, generated this hydrogen car. It's, 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 it's such a good piece of Queensland history. You've got to go and look at it. I'll send it to you, Gene. It, you know, it's just you nowhere know else but Queensland. Joe, was he was pouring water into the engine. The media wasn't allowed to look at the boot of the car. And and in the initial day, the press conference initially done, the, they couldn't find the keys. They had to come back the next day <laughs> <laughs> to start the car. Anyway, obviously that didn't go anywhere. Um, and Joe was a big backer of hydrogen. It wasn't just one, a one-off event. Um uh, so that's the old physics joke that hydrogen is 20 years away. It's just always been 20 years away. Yeah. So look, it might be different this time. Let's go for it. But look, there's a lot of challenges with hydrogen storage, transport. It's very, very explosive at the moment. It's very, very costly. So there's a lot to do. I mean, this comes back to something we haven't discussed. I mean, you've got this thing called nuclear mm. sitting there. I mean, it does work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think it's a bit costly, you know, it, that's my concern with it. I'm not concerned about the safety or any of these things, but it is costly compared to fossil fuels. But look, if if what we want to do is get rid of emissions, why don't we just do that? And uh, and that I mean, we've I've tried to keep this discussion largely about economics, but on the political front of this, I sometimes do really ask: Is this really about climate change, or is it about political change? Because if it was about climate change, why aren't? And if they produce, if all the alarmists are right, the, the world's going to I'm being exaggerated, but blow up. Why don't we just build nuclear power stations? Mm. I mean, they're there. It's a, they're, as I say, maybe a bit more expensive, but it's a moderate cost. It's affordable, and they provide reliable power. They have very little land land use impact. Um, very compact. There's no fuel shortages of uranium. The uranium price is very low. Go for it. Just do it. But the fact that so many of the activists are so against nuclear indicates to me that they, there is at least another agenda here. It's not only about climate change because that doesn't matter. It makes sense. Um, if it was about climate change, just build nuclear. Well, I think a lot of people have an emotional approach to this issue rather than a, a rational approach to it's it. It's not just this issue, Gene. It's every issue. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but but you're right. That's, that's what's caused, that's what's created a problem for nuclear over the years. I, I do think it's time to reconsider that. Um, you know, you, 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 there's, there's, it's pretty much the safest form of power generation uh, around the world. It's not far off renewables. So people fall off the roofs and solar and panels, yeah. installations, all these things. Um, it's a very, very safe technology. We've got a lot of uranium ourselves, so it doesn't hurt our energy independence. Uh, and as I say, the technology is off the shelf. Now, there's, there's these new things, small modular reactors and mm. Gen 4 reactors, but 
you could just use the existing technologies and as I say, maybe a slightly higher cost, but not not wouldn't bankrupt you. I mean, that's where it's interesting to see that's where the UK is going. I don't know yeah. if you followed this. Yeah, yeah. A few months ago, a few months ago, nuclear couldn't get a stand at COP26. There's a big controversy that the UK bureaucrats, you can look it up, had denied the World Nuclear Association or something like that. I might be getting this title wrong. Uh, had denied them having a having a booth, I suppose, or a stand. Yeah. Um, and then uh, just in the last week uh, or two, a bunch of European countries have signed an agreement to progress nuclear, and it's getting a big spot at COP26. And this is all a result of the energy crisis we're seeing in in Europe and the UK at the moment. They've woken up to the fact that wind and solar ain't going to do it. Yeah. Um, and they're not particularly, obviously, keen on uh, continuing this. Uh, this uh, supplicate relationship with Russia. Mm. I'll look that up. That's fascinating. I just finally, because I, I, I know you've got important stuff to do, negotiations uh, in Canberra. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of news. Oh, you do, yeah, you've been there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I always enjoy watching you. You always have something interesting to say. So uh, really appreciate, really appreciate that. Now, what about CCS, this carbon capture mm. and storage? Mm. Is it the case that we tried we tried some experiments with commercialising it in Australia ten years ago or something. I think that was part of the Rudd government's agenda, but it didn't. It just didn't work, or it doesn't stack up. Is that is that right? There's more the latter. The okay. former. It does work. You can do it. Yeah. Uh, been to the Petronova facility in Texas, uh, and they've got another one up in Canada. Boundary Dam, I think it's called. Haven't been to that one, but uh, look, it works. It just the, the price of it's very expensive. Yeah, it's still coming in at well. When I looked at this a few years ago, it's sort of eighty dollars a ton uh, abatement costs, and uh, and look, you can bring that down if you can get some gas recovery. So in Texas, they were reinserting, reinjecting the carbon dioxide into uh, former oil fields, mm. and that would repressurize the field and allow them to extract more of the oil. You, you don't get all the oil out of a out of an oil well because um, the pressure drops as you yeah. take oil out. So repressurizing and got more oil, and that gave them an income stream. But it still required a government, significant government subsidy. In, in any case, in the last few weeks, Petronova has closed, and I think it's going to be – I think actually, sorry, I think it was closed a while back, and I think they made a decision to just completely de, um, de, de, de dismantle it now. Um, so, look, it hasn't, you know, it hasn't really worked out as a technology. I mean, the International Energy Agency still sort of stresses that it's, it's something that's needed to solve this and going back to the point that I just don't think you're not going to be able to get rid of all fossil fuel use. I mean, yeah. even if you find something for transport, even if you find something for electricity, it's still used in plastics and all these other things that just can't see the modern world completely getting rid of. And so CCS then does become perhaps important, but I suppose that will depend on us willing to pay. Comes back, are we going to pay a carbon price, a shadow carbon price of $80 a tonne? I mean, if you believe that UK Treasury modelling will end up with governments and societies that are willing to pay a, a price, a cost of $295 a tonne. Right. Well, CCS will probably work then where it can. Keep in mind, CCS only works in some places too. You've got to have a uh, geological storage site. It's not leaking. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't work in the Bowen Basin. There are no known sites in the Bowen Basin. Um, there's some in the Surat Basin. There's some in uh, the La Trobe Valley and, and um, uh, offshore down there in the Bass Strait, the old oil fields there. But in the Hunter, in the Bowen Basin, there's nothing. So what do you do there? We, we just don't have a CCS solution there. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I was thinking of, uh, particularly if you're talking about willingness to pay high 
uh, carbon prices like that or costs of abatement, you, you'd be looking at geoengineering solutions or just sucking the yeah the CO2. I don't, I don't know the cost of those. There's a mob I saw doing that, I think, in Finland or a Scandinavian mm. country. But yeah. again, they, I don't know the, the abatement cost of that technology. But, yeah, that's – but this comes back to my point. Like I, I don't know if you're going to politically – be able to withstand that. It goes like you think about the analogy after a natural disaster. If you're mm. a, if you're a purist, heartless economist, you'll say, "Look, what we need after a cyclone goes through Townsville is we need the price of water, the price of food to skyrocket up, so that'll encourage more people to bring the supply of food <laughs> mm. and relief to Townsville." Yeah, that's not that's not going to fly. You know, yeah. you've just got to go and provide them the goods. And likewise here, so yeah, we need to make poor people suffer with higher living costs so they can encourage technological developments. This might take five, 10 years before costs come back down. That's not, they're not going to put up with that. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Senator Matt Canavan, I really appreciate your time. I found that uh, very uh, informative and uh, yeah, thought-provoking. So I really appreciate uh, your time today on this uh, program. Thanks. Thanks so much, Gene. And good. And keep going with the podcast and the blog. I keep up with it all the time. Well done. Good on you. Thank you, Matt. Okay. That's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.